All right. All right. Hey, folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. Uh, joining us today is someone who I never dreamed would one day come on this uh, little podcast that could hear. Uh, joining us today is a World War I historian whose depth and breadth of knowledge simply leaves me in awe um, just about every time I listen to his podcast, which is titled The Old Frontline Great War Podcast. That is correct, folks. Joining us today is Mr. Paul Reed. So, paraphrased from his website, uh, Paul Reed grew up in Sussex, first traveled to the Great War battlefields with, uh, with his school in 1982. And during that summer, he walked the Somme with his father, a World War II veteran. And Paul has been traveling back along the old front line ever since. For many years, he lived on the Somme, right in the village of Corselet. And for the past 30 odd years, he has worked as a battlefield guide for Legere Holidays. Is that, is that how you pronounce it, sir? It's these ledger holidays ledger. in the UK, but, but it's, it looks like the French leger, and uh, in Dutch it means army, which is appropriate. So, uh, ledger holidays, my apologies. <laughs> Paul has written a number of books about World War I, including the best selling Walking the Psalm and Great War Lives. He also works in television and has worked on and appeared in numerous programs, including BBC Time Watch, Meet the Ancestors, War Hero in My Family, and Who Do You Think You Are? Several of Paul's books are on my shelves back here, and I am thrilled to have him on the show. Mr. Reed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike, and please call me Paul. Um, so it's really great to be here, and it's good to have this opportunity to talk. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, for, for coming on. So um, I doubt that intro really did you uh, any justice. So um, just to start off, can you tell us, more about about yourself and 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 what you do well i, I think uh, you know i was i was born in the late 60s which was uh, so i grew up in the 70s which was a time kind of dominated certainly by the second world war in in britain um so i often refer to my generation as the airfix generation and airfix was a company that made plastic kits and model soldiers okay so i kind of grew, grew up on that you know kind of military history particularly world war Two. Um, from a very young age. So it was always there. My dad, as you mentioned, was a World War II veteran. All my uncles were Second World War veterans. So, so it was always there. But my my grandmother uh, was a young girl during the First World War. And uh, she'd had a brother and a whole load of cousins who'd all marched off to war in 1914. And only her brother returned. And she, she had this kind of lost generation, her own lost generation of young men, and she would often talk about them. And there was just something kind of strange about that war, something that kind of drew you in, uh, the the trenches, the barbed wire, the gas, and I mean, everything else. And she remembered as a kid seeing soldiers coming back from the Somme plastered in chalk and mud and things. Because uh, she lived in a town in, in Essex called Colchester, which okay. was a big military town. So it had bases all around it. And it had been part of the kind of beating heart of the British Army for, for a very, very long time. And, and it had a lot of military hospitals. So as a kid, that kind of that event in her life really changed things for her. And I think the loss of those cousins in particular, she never forgot them. So these names that she used to talk about, Ypres and Passchendaele and the Somme and 
they kind of stayed there. And uh, and I used to go down the library as a kid and read books on the First World War. There weren't quite as many in print then as there, <laughs> as yeah. there are now. Um, uh, and, of course, this is long, long before this, this thing called the Internet, which I know some people freak out when they try to imagine a world without the Internet. But uh, um, uh, I just was... C- Unexplicably fascinated by it, really. I think, um, and then when I went to went to school, um, I had two teachers uh, who were just as fascinated. I didn't know this, obviously, when I went to, went to secondary school, and um, and one of them had written a couple of books on the First World War, and they used to use the school minibus to sort of go out on trips, and and that's when I had my chance to kind of travel over there, really. Um, that's the kind of genesis of it. And then, you know, I, I went through the traditional route, school, university, and all that kind of stuff. I, I did a what some people might describe as a proper job for, for a little while um, in London, working for HM uh, Majesty's government uh, as a civil servant. And then I kind of got fed up with that and uh, um, decided that I wanted to go to France, walk the Somme, write a book about it, and... And went over there for three months and spent more than ten years there. So, wow. uh, um, so that kind of changed that path of my life. Um, and then, after I'd been living on the Somme for a while, a friend of mine who was a managing director at Ledger Holidays um, asked me to draw up a battlefield tour for them. And uh, they weren't really sure that anyone was kind of interested in it because there were small companies doing it. Um, the Holtz, Major and Mrs. Holtz, were doing tours right. in those days. Martin Middlebrook, Rose Coombs, Lynn McDonald, you know, all those kind of people. But they were they were quite expensive tours. I'm not saying they, they weren't worth it because you were traveling with those kind of icons of First World War writing at that right. time. Um, but they were for the ordinary person, they were kind of um a once in a lifetime kind of trip. And Ledger were a were a holiday company that specialized in affordable holidays. So we kind of took a a package from their their holidays and turned it into a battlefield tour and um and the f- very first tour we did was kind of it was under a hundred pounds for four days which was about a quarter of the equivalent cost for for other companies at the time so they got absolutely inundated by literally thousands of ordinary people wanting to go on battlefield Fantastic. tours and that was 25 years ago and i've been doing that ever since um uh, and and it goes on, you know. Obviously, COVID has got in the way of it all, but uh, uh, but it is a it's a big chunk chunk still of what they do. And in a typical year, we can we take fifteen thousand people to the battlefields of the First and Second World War. That's amazing. Um, and so that kind of keeps me busy. And and then, as you mentioned, some kind of from a TV perspective, about twenty years ago, I was approached by the BBC when they were doing a, a program about one of the very first big organized digs on the battlefields of the great war not then by professional archaeologists by amateurs um because professionals at that stage weren't interested in in that type of archaeology and the concept of conflict archaeology as it's now known wasn't really a thing then so this group of um belgians called the diggers were excavating this area that was being developed and they found this incredible amount of material of the war but also um human remains nearly 200 bodies in no man's land and in in the trenches 
and the BBC made a documentary about it and I got involved in that and it's kind of once you've done one of those things and if you're kind of vaguely good at it they'll, they'll keep coming back to you so I ended up working in a lot of different types of programs covering both world wars um straight documentaries but also things like who do you think you are including the american series of who do you think you are um it was matthew broderick's episode was the one that i worked on where uh, where we looked at um his connection to the american civil war and also his relative who was a stretcher bearer combat medic in the aef um in the mers argonne and was wounded there so uh that that was interesting because that that for the first time it was kind of a big reason to research an American soldier, which was quite interesting to do. Yeah, um, because the records, as you, I'm sure you know, are quite fragmented and, and a lot of them destroyed. Yes, by the by the 1973 fire at the Records Center. Yeah, about eight eighty five percent of the World War One records were destroyed. I think. Yeah. That's yeah. So his was amongst that, but. Um, uh, the state he came from, which I think it might have been Illinois or something like that, I can't, I can't remember. But they they'd done questionnaires for returning veterans when they came back from the war, uh, and he'd filled in one of them, uh, and that kind of gave his combat history, which was quite you know really quite useful. And and I, I I got quite attached to him actually because he wrote one of the questions was, "What did you learn from your time in the World War?" Um, and his response was, "Never enlist in the army again." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought that yeah. was pretty good. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One, of, one of my um one of my own drill sergeants in um in you know in, in boot camp they they wanted a lot of volunteers, you know, they you know you had to jump right away of course and volunteer, you know, I need a volunteer. And uh but, but at the end of boot camp I I remember my drill sergeant saying like, you know what man, like if there's one lesson you take away, you know, don't volunteer for anything from here on out. <laughs> so exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, so so I'm I'm lucky really that you know, kind of all of this is my job, um, and I'm lucky to have, uh, have earned a pretty constant living from it for over a quarter of a century. Um, but it's 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 not just a job; it's kind of who I am, and it's what I've always done, and it's what I would be doing even if no one paid me to do it. I would still be doing it. Um, uh, and I've been very lucky in that respect because it, it's, it's enabled me to live quite an unusual life, spending you know decades exploring battlefields, interviewing veterans, travelling to battlefields with veterans, and and so on. So uh, it's been a great privilege, really, to, to to be able to do all that. Oh, that is that's that's amazing, and you can tell it's it's your your passion. We're we're gonna. Um... In, in a little bit, I'm going to ask you some questions about the the podcast and like, just where do you get like the the, the volume of information that you have? But but um, but we've got um, so you're so the next question I had was you know like your your dad is a uh, was a World War II vet. Um, you know, you did have family in in the Great War. You have some some great cousins who who um, who are amongst the fallen. Um, so you have you you do have that that connection. Um, yeah, I mean, my dad was uh, he fought at Anzio in oh, the Second wow. World War, okay. uh, which was kind of the the nearest thing you could get to the Great War in World War Two in in Western Europe, anyway. Uh, in that you know he he was part of the U.S. He was a British soldier, but his unit was part of the U.S. Fifth Army mm-hmm. under General Mark Clark, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were a, an artillery unit that towed guns, 25-pounders. And the, okay. artillery, the, the army said, we're going to make you a mobile 
artillery unit. We're going to put you in priest self-propelled howitzers. Yes. Uh, M7 priests. So, um, so they made them a mobile artillery unit, and then they sent them to the most static part of the Italian campaign. Very, where they very sat military. on the beachhead. <laughs> sat on the beachhead for six months. And and he, you know, he lived in trenches and tunnels and bunkers and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's quite interesting, really, the kind of parallel there. But his father, so my grandfather and my maternal grandfather on my mum's side, they were both in the Great War. So my dad's dad, um, Bertie Samuel Reed, he was a a leading stoker in the Royal Navy. He was a career sailor. Okay. So he he joined up just after the turn of the century and uh, as a boy sailor, and then he went right through to the 1920s. And in 1915, he was on a ship called HMS Implacable, which was at Gallipoli. Oh. And, and as a leading stoker, he was down in the boiler room, you know, shoveling all the coal into the into the boilers and so on, and which was quite a dim and dank and quite horrible and and life shortening job because he got um, he got problems with his lungs uh, yep. because of the coal dust and and died in the fifties. So I, I never I never met him, uh, but uh, but. What the Navy would do on special operations is they would call for volunteers and they would call often below decks first. And they called for men to row in um, some army guys that were on their ship to shore. And I suspect that's probably all they told them. But what he ended up doing was rowing in the 1st Battalion Lancashire Fusiliers into W Beach at Gallipoli, uh, which was an action that resulted in the award of six Victoria Crosses to that regiment. And uh, and was his kind of defining moment in the Great War, where he he saw the Aegean Sea run red with the blood of the Lancashire Fusiliers, and um, you know it was quite something. And he spent quite a lot of time ashore because uh, the ship stayed there for the whole campaign, and he obviously kept going backwards and forwards. And as a kid, I used to play with an entrenching tool in my grandmother's back garden, which was his entrenching tool that he'd had at Gallipoli, which was. Wow. Quite wow, something, yeah. Something. yeah. And on the other side, uh, my maternal grandfather, uh, he jo- he was born in 1900. So he joined up right at the – he was conscripted right at the end of the Great War into the Rifle Brigade. Um, and then he transferred as a regular soldier to the Royal Army Medical Corps. And in the 1920s, he went to Turkey when Britain occupied Turkey after the Great War. Okay. Uh, to Chernakali and then to Gallipoli. And he worked on the cemeteries at Gallipoli. So every time I go there, there's one called Shell Green where there is a couple of REMC men who died of illness about the time he was there who have very similar numbers to him. So these must be guys that he knew. Right. Um, and I kind of think of him there working on the cemetery. So that's that's it's, it's kind of a nice connection with with. with Gallipoli kind of runs through that thread of my family's connection. And my grandmother I mentioned to you, whose brother went off to war, he was a regular soldier. He fought at Lucato and then the first Battle of Ypres. And then he was wounded. And when he recovered, he was sent to Gallipoli to join the 1st Battalion Essex Regiment. And um, and then he was shot through the elbow by a Turkish sniper in the Krithia Vineyard in August 1915. So it, it's, it's great to have these kind of personal connections like this because you're kind of thinking that you are walking in the footsteps of, of members of your own family, and that's, that's quite a powerful thing, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you, you, yeah. Like going to Gallipoli and, and, you know, seeing the same ground, like standing on the same beaches where, where some of your, your family members were like, that must be, that must very much like deepen your connection to, um, to, to the war and, and make it, make it seem even more real than it already is to you. So, Oh, that's, it's amazing. Definitely, yeah. Cause I now, mean, although, although my uh, paternal grandfather died before I was born, the other two I knew uncle Dan and the granddad, Alex, you know, I can remember them as kids and I, they died when I was, was too young really to ever really properly ask them about the great war, which is a, is a sad thing in many respects, but I kind of like to think that somehow I've followed a bit of their route and I've followed them around different places and, and I've kind of, you know, done justice to what their service was in some small way. Yeah. I was, I was, you know, I was, I was thinking that, you know, you, you, you honor their memory by, by sharing the, the, the history of the great war with, with the world and with, with the battlefield tours, with, um, with the books and, and, and everything that, that you do. So that's, that's amazing. I have to, um, as a, uh, high school teacher, um, so I love this, that, that it was, um, your own teacher. So secondary school in Britain, is that like the American equivalent of a, of a middle, middle and high school? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, that's right. So you said it, it was, it was two of your teachers who, um, who got, got you interested, um, into the great war. I heard this in your recent, um, e in a day, uh, podcast episode. So, um, can you tell us a little bit more about, about those two, about those two teachers? They were great. I mean, I think teachers are so, so important. They're so inspirational in children's lives and they can make such a difference, I think, to, to, to young people's lives and send them on paths that, you know, that possibly even the teachers themselves don't really ever kind of fully appreciate what they've done for them. And, and these two were, were definitely like that. So one was a geography teacher, Les Coates, and the other one was a history teacher, Roger Bastable. And when I first did history with Roger Bastable, he had an office in, in the school and I, I had to go and see him and pick up something or other. And he had a chunk of, of a headstone from, from a cemetery at Plug Street Wood where they'd um, removed the headstone. And, and in those days, they used to smash them up for, for hardcore for, uh, to, to re reinforce the, the trackways so they could get their vans in to do the maintenance and so on. And he found this chunk with a bit of a rifle brigade cap badge on it. And it was December 1914. You could just see that. And I, and I said to him, uh, sorry to ask you, sir, you know, why, why, why have you got a piece of stone with the badge of the Rifle Brigade on it? And he said, how did you know what that was? <laughs> so, so I said, well, I'm, I'm interested in that. Anyway, so I did history with him and then uh, geography with Les Coates. And Les Coates had written these books for students, which was kind of um, very fat. I mean, they're still used by schools today, so it shows 40 years later that just how valuable they are. And it's kind of, he wrote them from the point of view of that kind of age group, so teens um, in, into late teens uh, and using sources, so using original material, war diaries, newspapers, letters and things like that. And also the great thing that I've, I can't ever thank them enough for was that they really strongly believed in oral history to actually go and interview people that was there. And, and he 
put me onto a couple of veterans. And Roger Bastel's uncle was a great war veteran, Frank, who I went to go and see. And that kind of led me down that trail of tracking these these veterans down, which, you know, I can't thank them enough. But they, they used to use the, the school at a, a minibus. And I think they used to set these trips up for themselves, really, because they, they just obviously <laughs> wanted to go out and, and go to the battlefields for a few days for free. And who can blame them, you know? So, but... Um, uh, they would put it out to, it wasn't a compulsory thing. You could just kind of sign up for it. So I signed up for it and off I went. And finally, kind of after reading all this stuff over the years and listening to my grandmother and so on, there it was. There was the Great War walking across a field in Flanders and there's a German stick grenade lying in the field and, you know, there's shrapnel everywhere and uh, bullet heads and stuff like this. As a kid, to kind of see that, you know, history literally come alive in front of you, I think that was, that was a, definitely a moment in my life, I think, when I, I took a, a completely different turn and, and a good one, you know, has, has led me to where I am now and will no doubt continue to lead me in lots of different directions, you know, hopefully for many years to come. So I can't thank them enough. And, I'm, I, you know, over the years, I've, I've been back to see both of them, sadly, Roger Bastable passed away but Les Coates is still going he was he was over on the Somme uh the last time in 2020 just after the first lockdown we had here okay um, and so he's still going over there after all these years which is good his books are still selling which is good and you know and he, he said to me so you know we had no idea that just one kind of simple trip with a bunch of students would lead on to that because one of the other guys um well, there was two other guys in the van with me on that first trip. One is my best friend who I've known for most of my life, and we still he's passionate about the Great War. He collects medals to the mm-hmm. First World War and so on. And um, uh, and we still travel the battlefields together. And another one, my mate Stephen, he's also a Great War author. So he's written a whole load of books for Pen and Sword about Gallipoli oh. um, and some really great stuff on uniforms and equipment of the Great War. Stephen Chambers, his name is. And, uh, okay. Um, you know, so, so just in that one minibus, you know, and and in fact, this year it's forty years this year since we made this trip, and a few of us are going to go back as a fortieth anniversary trip to to Eep and um, and just kind of raise a few beers to our teachers and and times past. So it's, it's a good thing. So it just shows the power of things like this, really. Yeah, gosh, that is that is isn't that something? Like your your teachers had had no idea what what they were doing. Um, <laughs> Wow, but but that that just shows like how how young young people can be um, can be inspired by um, by by the right person. Oh. so you 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 kind of led into what was my next thing? Like, um, you know, what about that day or that trip inspired you? I mean, we we've heard um, you, you told us that. So if we can move into um, you becoming so, so this is this is one thing that fascinates me is and, and I've read it in in your um, battlefield guidebooks. Um, so if you can tell us a bit about how you became a battlefield guide and um, not less importantly, but but uh, really fascinating like how did you come to live at Corselet Village? on the song because that just man that must have i don't know i, I would be i would 
I don't know how to do them. I can't physically do them, but I would learn how to do cartwheels like, and just do them in the streets every day. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I start, I actually did my first tour as a battlefield guide when I was only 20, I was still at university and, and I, I had a friend of mine and, uh, there was a, I've, I've done a podcast on him actually, Henry Williamson. He was an author who uh, was a nature writer and he, but he, he'd served in the great war uh, and he wrote a hell of a lot about it, a lot of it fictionalised. And um, there was a Henry Williamson uh, Society, and my mate Brian was a member of it. He said, Let, let's do a trip for some of the members of the Henry Williamson. So we did. So I was only 20, and we took a minibus of people over. Um, and Brian was a really clever – he should have been an actor, really. He had a great voice. He could do different accents and different voices and so on. And we did a kind of double act where I'd do the history and he would read extracts from the books in lots of different voices. So there were different characters from the East End of London. He'd do an East End accent and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it was quite a nice little combination. And we did that for quite a few years. And, and it wasn't, I wasn't really kind of earning a living out of it then, but it kind of got me on that road. And we did it in a minibus and then we, we did it on a coach a few times and so on. Um, and then just kind of jumping on, by that time I'd graduated and I was working and so on. I didn't, like I said, I didn't really kind of enjoy the, the job that I, that I did. I, I suppose you could argue that I've been lazy, really, that I've never really wanted to do a proper job. And all, I, all, I, all I've ever wanted to do is spend a lifetime wandering around battlefields and doing this kind of stuff, which is what I've done. But, um, yeah. You're, you're, you're uh, not the only one. I, um, you know, I, I was, my, my parents were very hardworking and um, I think my, my mother did a double take when I was like, I only, you know, I, I only work because I have to, you know, it's not out of any love for work. <laughs> I'd much rather like be buried in these books all day. So exactly. I, I, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so I, 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 uh, I moved out of London and, uh, and I saved up a little bit of money and went over to, uh, to France for three months, um, and stayed at a place there and, uh, to kind of just walk the ground and then um i ended up meeting somebody and uh, we ended up um, moving into a for finding a house on the battlefields and um it, it was just kind of chance really course i mean we went to estate agents and said we want a, a house on the battlefields and they said well where's that you know these french french estate agents what do you mean what what, what do you mean by battlefields and so i had to kind of draw a circle around <laughs> some areas and say there please and we found this place, which was an old uh, farmhouse and uh, with some barns that um, compared to kind of house prices in the UK was pretty cheap. So we ended up moving in there um, and living there for, for over 10 years. Um, I don't live there myself any longer, but my daughter still lives there. Um, so there's still a bit of a connection to it. But uh, yeah, I mean, actually kind of living in that space of the Great War was a very different sort of experience to just visiting it. Um, because he was there every day, you know, in the garden, there'd be shrapnel balls when you're kind of digging the vegetable plot. And, um, and they, they dug out, um, we had one of the barns converted. So this was inside the barn and there was a mini digger digging out the floor to put a permanent floor in it. Sure. And he dug up a live 18 pound of shell inside the building. So, uh, there you go. Was kind of lodged in the foundation of the original structure had been there. So it just shows, you know, however ever present the First World War was there. And, and you know, people would knock on, on the door and say, oh, I've just found this in the fields and it'd be a German shell case or whatever. 
And then one night a guy turned up, knocked on the door, and he had a, a steel helmet, British steel helmet in his hand with a skull in it. And he said, I've just found this in the in the back lane there. He said, we're, we're clearing the bank. And he said, this fell out the, the bucket of the digger. He said, I think there could be the rest of the body in there where you come down, you know. It's, it's like it, What he was saying was, you're British, it's one of yours. Do you want to come and collect it? Right, right, <laughs> right. So, so I went down there, and, and indeed there was a complete body there. And he was a Canadian soldier, because Corselet was a Canadian battlefield. Mm-hmm. Eight and a half thousand Canadians killed there, over six thousand of them missing. So he was he was one of the missing. And um and there was a complete body there. The, there were artifacts that identified him as Canadian, but nothing to identify him as an individual, sadly. So he was properly reburied in Corselet Cemetery as an unknown Canadian soldier. Um so he has an honored burial now, which he, he didn't have for many, many Decades. I mean, that was in the 90s, you know, which is kind of what's that? It's the 80th anniversary of the Great War. So uh, it was a long time he'd been there in that little bank. And it was a probably a shelter where there was an aid post because he didn't have a tunic on. Because when you find the body of a soldier and there's a tunic on, you find the row of tunic buttons and the pockets mm-hmm. and things like that. There was none of that. There was shirt buttons. There was the bits of his braces Okay. Hold his trousers up and things like that. So, it, and he'd had he had one arm uh, gone, blasted off by shell fire, and one leg lost from shell fire. Oh. Typical kind of battle injuries that you'd find in a heavily shelled area, which of course that was. Um, and I think they'd removed his tunic to try and stem the the injury to his arm. Um, probably had that piled up somewhere, and it looked as if a shell had then hit the shelter and the roof had collapsed and um so if he wasn't killed instantaneously well that his wounds definitely kind of would he wouldn't have survived those anyway i don't think mm-hmm. so it's one of those occasions when you see this you see the kind of grim reality of of warfare it's one of the things that archaeology tells us and you, you often get asked because i've been lucky to also be involved in a lot of great war archaeology i'm not an archaeologist i'm an historian but in the best type of archaeology, people from different disciplines work together to understand what it is they're excavating. So I've been lucky to to work as an historian and see some really great archaeologists do their do their trade. Um, but seeing things like this, you know, seeing the remains of soldiers, it, it really gives you an insight into how fragile the human body is under these circumstances and how powerful the artillery was in the Great War. Uh, which was the greatest killer of all. You know, it wasn't machine guns and bayonets and gas. The king and queen of the battlefield was artillery. Right, right. And and I, I think um, that also ties back to the fact of, of 8,000 Canadians killed with, with 6,000 un- unrecovered because the, the oh. battlefield was churned up constantly um, by by the guns. Um, wow. Definitely, yeah. And, so then- I, and I think living there, um, you know, all the time one of the things uh, as a as a kind of young man i, I walked the landscape I, as you mentioned i grew up in sussex which is a is a chalk landscape it's chalk downland um so it's rising hills and sheep sheer steep escarpments cut into cut by chalk and um and it's a landscape not dissimilar to the Somme. okay um so i kind of I've always had an identity connection really between those two places but living somewhere full-time like the Somme, you see the landscape throughout the year and you see the way it changes 
and you see things that you just don't see if you just pop over occasionally. You know, the way that at certain times of the year in certain fields when they're ploughed in a certain way, this ghost mark of the trenches is kind of visible in the fields. You can see indentations in the fields when certain crops are in them and and just the weather conditions at the time of the year when there's a lot of early morning mist and it rises out the ground and it looks like gas clouds drifting across these places and it's really quite atmospheric when you kind of know what happened there. I'm sure French people just drive by and don't think anything of it. But right. us, us great war historians, we can't look at something like that and not see a, a connection uh, to it all. And and because I spoke, my grandmother was French, so I, I kind of spoke French anyway. Um, talking to people on that landscape in those days, in, in the kind of late 80s and when I lived there in the 90s, that generation that had experienced the aftermath of the First World War and then the Second World War was still alive, was in retirement, a lot of them were ex-War Graves Commission gardeners and so on. Okay. And you just learned so much by talking to those people because um, they'd seen things that had disappeared, you know, woods where there were mine craters and fields where there were trenches. And they could tell you stories about the cemeteries, which are not wartime stories, but they were the stories of how people reacted to them and visited them and, and things like this. And, Again, I feel greatly privileged that I was kind of in that position at that time to meet these people and uh, and and meet also so many Great War French Great War enthusiasts who were kind of remembering the Great War and the the, the British and Commonwealth sacrifice of it at a time when probably very few people in Britain were that they were out there working in the cemeteries or looking after memorials and and so on and and some of them had staggering kind of collections of great war material because it was just everywhere i mean i, I was i remember as a kid reading a, a magazine where this guy in the 70s walked to the somme and there was like steel helmets and bayonets in the corner of a field and when i went there with my dad in the summer of 82 it, it was pretty much the same there was steel helmets in in the corner of a field and bayonets kind of stuck in the ground near carrots and things like this you know and it's just extraordinary really extraordinary yeah. um and some of these guys who'd been collecting stuff like that for decades are these amazing private museums with artifacts in them that not even museums in britain had you know so again that generation has kind of faded away now and a lot of those collections have been dispersed but again I kind of feel it's part of the privilege that I've had to sort of see this side of the battlefields and it was only possible by living there really I think oh that's that's amazing because I um I remember I think it was at the at the Teatval Memorial their their um uh, their visitor center and and they had um you know first they had a, a the wall of, of English language memoirs and histories. Um, but then I, I think it was there. They, they, they also had French language. Like um, if it wasn't there, it was obviously somewhere else, but had a large section, French memoirs of, of the great war, French histories. And, and um, I just remember like uh, thinking like my, my own French is like very inadequate and, and just thinking like, wow, what a, what an entire world of knowledge here. That's, that's closed off to English speakers because we, we don't have, we don't speak that language and, and not enough has been translated. Um, but what, what, a, what an amazing opportunity you've had to, to connect with, with those, those French nationals who 
again, like work the cemeteries and they, they have that knowledge and they were probably, you know, happy to, to, to share their, their memories and, and, you know, um, have that, have that carried on. I, I, one thing I, I think of often is like on the Psalm living on the Psalm, like, and in, in you've answered it here is like, how do the, like, I, I know, you know, everybody gets on with their lives, but someplace like the Psalm and, and Ypres and, and, um, and out East, like in, in Verdun, like it's, it's always the war, like, la guerre, like it's always, it must always be around. I mean, if, if you're, you know, digging, you know, planting this year's crop and you're digging up shrapnel balls, like clearly, you know, that's like, wow, this is, you know, if you had stood in this spot, you know, a hundred years ago, like this would have been a very incredibly dangerous place to, to be. So like that, it's always there with them. Um, amazing. Amazing. No, it is. And I think, uh, you know, uh, yeah, toujours la guerre, the, it's, it's always there. Um, some are more aware of it than others. I mean, a lot of them kind of, they kind of drive around and they're surrounded by cemeteries and memorials and so on. I think some of them don't, don't really kind of see it because it's always been there. Right. Um, others, the farmers are obviously much more aware of it because they have the practicalities of dealing with ordnance um, and the chemicals of, of war that seep into their land and, and can affect things. Um, uh, I mean, I knew several farmers who had issues with mustard gas in different locations, you know, because of this. It remained dormant in the soil in um, pasture land that had never been ploughed since before the war. And then they got, um, you know, a grant from the European government to, to reduce the level of pasture land and cultivate more land. So they ploughed stuff up uh, and that then kind of released the toxins from from all sorts of stuff, which wasn't a, <laughs> wasn't oh, a wow. pleasant experience for some of them. So Even now? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and although the kind of... I mean, the Zone Rouge, which was the red zone that existed in parts of France after the war, where it was areas that uh, were classified as, as total destruction, uh, which is Verdun is a, is a good example of it, and, and bits of the Somme and around Ypres and, and big chunks of northern France and so on. Um, the idea that it kind of still exists today is, is is a bit of a myth, but, I mean, there are areas. I mean, everywhere is part of it. I mean, there's, there's just as many munitions in a Somme field as there is in a Verdun forest. The, the difference is they're actually more likely to be disturbed actually in a Somme field than they are in a Verdun forest because right. it's a static landscape. It doesn't really, there have been areas that have been completely demolished at Verdun um, and then replanted with trees. Uh, so they run them as commercial forests. And that's, there was a big, I think as France's awareness of this changed, there was a, a quite a protest against this because what it does do is reforesting an area destroys all of the archaeology at ground level. Mm -hmm. So all the trenches that existed and were preserved by the plantation of these trees, when they are felled and then the roots are torn up and the ground is cleared and replanted, all of that <clears> is lost. Um, and, and up would also <laughs> come with the roots, remains of soldiers, yeah, you know, huge amounts of munitions and all this kind of stuff. So um, it's it's still very much there, yeah, still very much there. And I think I would say that for a long time the French weren't truly aware of the First World War in a way that they should have been, but I think that that's changed, particularly during the centenary. Uh, is, where that, 
It, is that because of just simply the passage of time or um, as my, I have a, a uh, cousin who, uh, who, who is French. He grew up in, in the Paris area and he, you know, he explained, um, it was interesting what he said to me about World War One. what he learned in school is he, he said it was, it was very, it was very traumatic. It was very traumatic to the French people. Um, so is it, is it just simply the passage of time, them, them not having a, a, an understanding of the war, or is it just like still something too, a little too traumatic to, to, to dive into? I think, I think traumatic is a good way to describe it. I I think it's, it's like an, it was like an open wound in some respects because the, the kind of dark thread of it then led through to events in the second world war. And, and, you know, one of France's greatest first world war heroes, becomes a collaborator uh, with uh, Marshal Pétain, Vichy France, and so right. on. Um, so they kind of you can't really separate bits of one from another. Um, and there was a, a big reluctance to, to kind of want to talk about aspects of the Second World War in France. Um, in the north where I lived, in, in the Somme region, um, there was actually quite a high level of resistance in World War II because um, in the northernmost area they were coal miners, so they had communist unions, uh, and of course, communism ideologically opposed to fascism. So right. they they were they were joining up in droves to fight in the um, the French resistance. And down on the Somme, a lot of people worked for the railways, and again, they had communist unions and so on. So when you look at the kind of pre-D-Day um, resistance activity in France, a big chunk of it is in is in is in the north, um, but. I think the, the the issue is is that for a lot of French people, and, and I think the way it's your friends probably had this in school, the way it's taught, it's Verdun. That's it. There's nothing else. Yeah. Um, and they can't mention the Chemin des Dames because in France's mind that led to the mutinies and they don't discuss the mutinies or mm-hmm. didn't discuss the mutinies. They got better at that. I mean, they, at one stage, they, they had all the papers related to it closed for two centuries or something crazy. Um, um, but... Um, but that's changed a lot. So they're kind of coming to terms with it more. Uh, and I think the number of Twitter accounts you see uh, from French people doing research in the French army, particular regiments, or um, honouring particular war memorials or, or so on, you know, that's that's kind of changed, creating a new dynamic. And I, and I think uh, the great thing about France is that it's put all of its archives of individuals and regiments online for free. So there's, you know, if you've got the power to... to to utilize the French language, you've got a massive resource of material there which you can tap into, which is phenomenal, really. I I just found um a website the other day that has like every French regimental history that's available. They've all been digitized, they're all in mm-hmm. French. So um Google Translate and I um Google Translate comes in very handily. So uh to, to try and tease out what what's happening, but it's there, there is a lot, and and um, yeah, the, the the French experience is something that's that's always fascinated me with with the Great War. Um, so that's that's fascinating to um, to hear. Um, Paul, is there a is there one place or 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 more? Is there a place on the west on the Western Front that calls you back? a place that you visit more than others or, or maybe it's not on the Western front. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, obviously, I kind of lived in Corselet for a long time, and Corselet British Cemetery. Anyone who follows me on Twitter will have been endlessly yeah, kind of bombarded by my photographs of it at sunset, sunrise, and you know, various times of the years. So that, that's always a special place. It's a unique cemetery that sits on a slight rise with a little track, a windy track leading up to it. It's in the middle of open fields. There's nothing around it. Um, and the way it's positioned is that for a big chunk of the year, it has the sun at just the right kind of angles to it. Um, and the vast open landscape just creates these skies when it's cloudy that are just – I don't have to edit the photographs. The sky does it for me. It's just incredible. So that's yeah. good. But there's – there is a particular place on the Somme that I, that I always go to. There's a little cemetery, Hawthorne Ridge Number no. 1 Cemetery, and buried in there is uh, Second Lieutenant Eric Rupert Heaton, who was killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme uh, when he was only 20 years old. And he was in the in the attack on the Hawthorne Mine Crater, uh, this, which is just a you know, 100 yards from, from where the cemetery is located. And I knew his uh, sister, Irene and uh, through her I kind of saw all of Eric's papers and letters and it's a fantastic story that um, he was missing for four and a half months and his body was found and he was buried there and uh, his mother was completely devastated by his loss and um, she had a he wrote a last letter home where he the classic kind of last letter saying that he um, he wanted to you know live to uh, up to the example of his father who was a priest and he wanted to follow him into the priesthood and um, travel around the world and so on. And he'd, he'd worked hard in France to win the respect of his men. And and he, he didn't want things to be black for them if he fell, that they should live always to his memory and, you know, things like this. And it, it's you can't help but kind of uh, get dusty eyes when you read this, uh, mm-hmm. when you read this letter he wrote. And she had it printed and distributed amongst the family and the original she kept under her pillow and she would read it every night before she went to sleep she would kiss it put it under her pillow mm-hmm. um and when she died it was buried with her and um and and to me if you want to kind of encapsulate the loss of the first world war in just one episode and one soldier eric's story is really a big part of it and then the family went there in 1919 in the middle of this wilderness as it would have been then, right? just nothing. The father, who was a priest, the mother, the brother who survived, who was an army chaplain, and Irene as a young woman. And, um, and they put a little plaque against his wooden cross, um, and it's still there. It's against his headstone now. It's still there to this day, you know, 100 and something, 103 years later, it's still, it's still there. Um, and the photograph of, of her kneeling at her brother's cross and the family behind her, is just a kind of classic pilgrimage um, image. And I tracked her down because she was still called Heaton, so she'd never married. Okay. And uh, and when she was showing me all the kind of family photographs, there were pictures of her as a young woman, and she was a stunningly beautiful woman. And I said to her, you know, how come you never married? You know, being a kind of 20-odd-year-old then, being a bit cheeky, you know, you know why didn't you marry Mrs. You know, kind of thing. Well, not, not quite in those words, but, uh, um, and, and she said, well, she said, the thing was, she said, um, you know, we were a middle-class family. My father was a vicar. Um, most of the men of that class had been killed in the great war. So there weren't that many suitors for me to kind of marry. And she said, the other thing was, she said, I always felt that my, my brother was the archetypal 
view for me of what a man should be. And I, and I felt that no man would ever live up to it. So I, I just never married. And, and again, she, in some respects, she was a casualty of the Great War because what happened to her brother changed her life and, and took her down a path that meant that she never married, she never had a family, and, you know, and she lived in the shadow of that war for, for the rest of her life. I mean, she lived in this big house on the Sussex coast and she lived in one, she'd had a stroke and she lived in one room and the whole room was just a kind of a mausoleum to, to him, to Eric, mm -hmm. pictures of him everywhere and she had a lock of his hair and, you know, extraordinary really, you know, so, uh, and that was another thing. I mean, I interviewed a lot of First World War veterans, but I also deliberately interviewed a lot of women of that generation because they gave a completely different insight into this in, in terms of how it affected them. Um, uh, and particularly those that had loss, you know, it's, 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 it was a part of um, the Great War that I think wasn't verbalised for a long time. But, but again, they were at the right age where I could be a bit cheeky and ask them these things and, and they would kind of give up these secrets. And it was both extraordinary and moving often to hear these tales of what the loss of a brother, or, um, a partner, um, a fiancé, whatever, what it had done to them. Um, it in every case, it devastated them for the rest of their lives. So that that makes me think of a question. So I, you know, of course, we hear of of the the fallen of World War One as as a lost generation, and I I know that in I mean, Great Britain had from from the um, from. Uh, from Britain, Wales, and Scotland, um, some three quarters of a million men who who were killed, and of course, but but I so I've heard that you know the, about the the lost generation and and the young men being gone, but I've also encountered um, in my reading where um, I encountered one quote that has stuck with me, and, I, and I'm only going to paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly, but it was like you know we didn't we didn't really miss those men like when, when they were gone and not, not being, not being callous, but just like, you know, it wasn't like, it was, it was kind of taking some of the power of that, of that lost generation. Um, like, you know, it, it didn't mean that this country was, was just empty of young men. Um, so, but this to me, like this, um, this Mrs. Heaton's, Miss Heaton's uh, story, it, that seems to, to point very much in, in the other direction that, that there was like, she, she didn't have many suitors, but because they, they, they were gone. So um, do, do you think it's more of the, the first case? I think, I think it's a comp it's a really interesting question because it's a complex one because most men survived the great war. I mean, mm -hmm. in the infantry, which was the greatest, if you served in the infantry, your chances of being killed was the greatest of all. But in the infantry, um, one in five were killed and three in five were wounded. So that meant that you had quite a small chance of not you know, getting any kind of scratch, even if it was a minor wound, but it meant that most of them, um, four in five of them, survived. Right. So most men came home. But whether they were the same men again when they came home is another thing. And, uh, and I think if there is a, there's a lost generation, but I think there's a forgotten generation, and that's the forgotten survivors of the great war the men who came home and had to deal with the legacy of the war for the rest of their lives i mean these guys were tough they were a tough generation 
but they went through things that we could only kind of barely imagine at times and uh and that changed you know who they were in so many so many different ways and they didn't have the language that we have now for this really as well and that was something that i encountered with the veterans that uh, that i interviewed they would never use the phrase shell shock ptsd didn't exist right. then uh as a term and so on and and a common thing i would go there was one i, I used to go and see albert chesters he was in the royal welsh fusiliers uh, and he'd say uh, i fought the battle of the somme in my bed again last night and, uh, and that was his kind of that was his kind of gentle um quite disparaging way of putting across that the the ghosts had crept around him and he'd relived the experiences of Mamet's Wood and where he'd fought, you know, again that night and probably many, many nights throughout his life. So he never left them. Not one of them did it ever, ever leave them. And and the memory of people that they had known who died never left them either. And, you know, we, we talk about survivor's guilt. Again, that's, that's a kind of concept that they would not have been familiar with, but that is essentially what many of them had. And they'd often ask me, knowing that I went to the battlefield, they'd ask me to go and visit particular graves for them because they were mates that had been killed. And they just, I guess they wanted to see if they were still there somehow. And some of them were on memorials to the missing, like the Menning Gate or Deep Vale. Mm-hmm. But others did it did have graves and it, and it was it actually it 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 kind of gave them a lot of sense of closure in some way really to know that these men were commemorated that they hadn't kind of just disappeared off the face of the earth and there was one veteran Al Frazel, who went back to he'd served in the Royal Fusiliers and had been captured by the Germans at Arras in 1917 and when he was being led off. He looked in a shell hole and there was one of his mates in there. He had a terrible wound that he knew he wasn't going to survive it. And he tried to get the Germans to take him away on a stretcher, but they could they looked at him and thought he's not going to survive. Why waste a stretcher on a dead man rather than use it, you know, for a for a lot one that might survive, particularly one of their own. So they wouldn't. And so Alf had to kind of be led off and he promised Bill Hubbard that he'd come back, send someone back for him, but he he couldn't. And, and that haunted him. It, haunt, it haunted him because he didn't survive. Um, Alf had no idea what had happened to him, really, but he didn't survive. He knew he'd been killed, but he didn't, he didn't, that's all he knew. And then in the 1990s, he came across, late 80s, early 90s, he came across and he visited the Arras Memorial to the Missing and he saw Bill Hubbard's name on there and it kind of brought that story to, a, to an end for him. He... he, he he lived for another nearly 10 years, Alfredo. He's an amazing guy. But uh, he, it brought him a closure to that in a way that nothing else possibly could have done, I don't think. So there, there was, most men didn't die. But the way the, the, those that survived then spent the rest of their lives, in some respects, in the shadows of the dead, is a really important aspect of understanding the First World War, certainly from a British perspective, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, and I think in France as well. I mean, they, they, France as a country had a, a smaller population than Britain in 1914, despite the fact that it's two and a half times the size in terms of land mass. But Britain lost, as you said, three quarters of a million, France 1.4. I mean, almost twice as many. Right. And uh, even in Corselette, where I live, you know, there's like nearly 
there's 40 odd names on the war memorial and this was a village that only had 300 people living in it in 1914 so right that's a huge <laughs> that's a huge chunk of their their eligible male population gone and um but i think why that kind of concept of a lost generation was so strong is that that everybody i guess had survivor's guilt that they'd gone through it and and when the truth of the war came out in the memoirs of Robert Graves and Siegfried Sassoon and all these others, I think it kind of shocked everyone who wasn't there. It believed that Tommies did go smiling to the trenches and laughed and joked and clutched their chest when they were killed. But the reality of it was very different. Right. Right. Oh, wow. What a, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for, for, um, for, for, talking about that um these these amazing stories that you have from from talking to the veterans um i'm, I'm gonna go off our off our list of questions here a bit because I, I think i think i left this out um you obviously like you've already mentioned you you met a lot of a lot of great war veterans um and, and you've already given us several examples of them but what a what an experience that that must have been to to connect with uh, with these men who who had been there, and and now you and you also had, um, took some of them out to their former battlefields. Yeah, I uh, I, I met up with uh, a couple of groups that used to do this, and, and I went round with them. So there was a group of um, I got interested in in uh, the Welsh lads at Mamet's Wood because a mate of mine took a minibus over every year with some of the vets in, and I met up with them, and we, we went round. And then I went to interview these guys and I tracked down some more. But, yeah, I mean, I was lucky to be on the ground with, over there with some veterans. But in the UK, I mean, I, I was living on the Sussex coast, which is a retirement area. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were lots of retirement homes and kind of retirement estates and things like that. And people from all over the UK came to live there in their retirement. So it wasn't just people from that, that area. It was people from a kind of broad spectrum of Britain. And once you kind of began to make inquiries, because it was so unusual then for somebody wanting to talk to these guys, then people say, oh, yeah, Mr. Sons, he lives around the corner. He was in the Great War. He was in the trenches or whatever it was. And then you go and see them. And then Martin Middlebrook, um, when I got a copy of his book, in the back of it, he lists all the veterans that he interviewed as, as part of his research. And for a reason, because I know mine, he, he, he still doesn't really know why he did this, but he put where they were living at the time that he interviewed them, so the town. Mm-hmm. So in those days, again, pre-internet days, in British libraries, there was a set of phone books for the whole country. And you could get these things out. And you could. And no, very few people were ex-directory, so they, they were, everyone was pretty much listed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could go through this and look up, you know, Mr. Bill Brown lived in Hastings, and I'd look through, and I'd just, there might be three or four of them, and I'd ring them up and say, are you Mr. Bill Brown who served in the 2nd Battalion Middlesex Regiment at Mash Valley. And they go, some would go, what, what are you talking about? And they put the phone down. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of them would say, yes, that was me. You know, and I'd, and I'd kind of trace them that way and ring them up, never chat with them on the phone. Now, some of them were, didn't have a lot to say for all sorts of reasons. Some didn't want to say a lot and mm-hmm. some had kind of pushed it into the background and there was probably nothing that I could do to ever kind of bring it out. But there would be a few where you could just tell. You got, I got to learn. I learned how to kind of tell were the ones that were going to be potentially quite interesting. 
and they were the ones that I then went round to kind of go and see uh, using that kind of method. But yeah, I mean, I, I lost count. It was over three hundred and fifty of these guys that I that I interviewed in one way or another, and um, and some of them I got to know particularly well and went to see again and again and again up until the day they died. And uh, and I actually stopped just before I moved to the Somme. I'd stopped tracking them down because I'd gone to so many funerals that he was quite upsetting really <laughs> yeah and I, and I decided I'd, I'd had enough of that I couldn't kind of suddenly get to know this guy and he, and and then he's gone so I decided to stop and, and a part of me regrets that but I then again I didn't have a bad innings with all the ones that I did uh, speak to so so that was good but uh yeah I mean I it, it, it to me it was a normal thing to go and sit with these guys and because I knew the ground there so well and I understood the kind of geography, which from A to B to C to D, and they'd sort of kind of say something about a place, and I'd say, "Well, what about this place?" And they were thought that was extraordinary that somebody could know that. But it opened doors, and it made them talk about stuff, and they got to trust me. And they told they, I know that they many of them told me things they'd never spoken about to anybody, oh, uh, particularly their own family. Um, there was one guy I went to go and see. And uh, his son was listening next door with a glass pressed against the door, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of <laughs> listening to what his dad was telling me. Uh, and, uh, and then the old boy, he spoke for nearly three hours. Um, and he said, oh, we better have a cup of tea now. And he, and he called boy, boy to this lad of his. It wasn't, wasn't a lad. He was in his kind of 50s or something or other. And he said, go and, go and make a cup of tea. So I went and, went and helped him. I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that you've been kind of locked in that back room for a few hours. He said, no, he said, I've been listening with a glass. He said, he's told you things I've never, ever heard. It's amazing. So it kind of shows. And I, I think that they've got to an age, and a you know, psychiatrist, psychologist, whichever, could probably give us a, a professional answer for this. But they've yeah. got to an age, I think, where they'd become confessional where they carried the weight of these experiences and they wanted to reduce that load by telling somebody. And, and I came along and I didn't say, come on, granddad, tell me how many times you stuck a German in the belly with your bayonet. Right. That's, you say that to any kind of veteran of any conflict, that's it. They're going to switch off and tell you where, rightly tell you where to go. I asked them, I would actually take them back to their childhood to start off with. Tell me about where you grew up. Where did you go to school? What did you do? What did your parents do? You know, and it kind of got them into the mindset of that period. And some of them would have almost total recall of it. It was extraordinary. And one of them, uh, George Butler, um, who was the most, probably the most cantankerous one that I, I ever met, but was one of the most amazing men that I've ever met in my life. Uh, he would kind of be so much in the past that he'd stop and look at me and he'd say, which mob did you serve with? And because I, he's looking at me and I was in my 20s and I'm the kind of age he was then, and he thinks he's talking to a fellow Great War veteran. Oh, he was in the moment. Yeah, and, and he's back there and I was like, well, no, I was a bit too young for, for the trenches, George. You know? <laughs> it's like, well, I wasn't there. So, But, uh, yeah, it just shows, though, just shows. And, yeah. And I, and I was lucky, you know, and I was very, very, again, I was lucky that, uh, to, to, to be at that time when these men were, it was their 11th hour 
you know they were it was the last ticking moments of their generation and and i and i was through the odd circumstances of my life able to ask them the right questions and and they rewarded that with all these all these kind of stories many of which you know um i now kind of put into the old front line and then put into books and tell on 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 uh, tours because that's a way of keeping these these guys alive yeah that is and you know that is the i think the the power of of these podcasts is that it it as long as these podcasts are on the internet, like the, these names, um, even the names mentioned here on this podcast today, like they will, they will live on and, and, and people will be able to listen to your podcast and hear the story of someone. And, and then uh, like the one you did on the gentleman uh, buried near Fushy Chappelle um, mm. that, that they can, you know, in the future, someone can go visit and, and be like, Hey, check out this podcast. Like, you know, here's the story of, of, uh, of a gentleman who, who was buried near here. Um, so yeah, it, it is about keeping their, their memory, um, alive. Um, speaking of stories, podcasts, so books, you've worked on TV. Um, what gave you the idea for, for the old frontline podcast? Well, that, that's an interesting story, uh, in its own right. I mean, I, I, quite probably over a decade ago, uh, the British historian Dan Snow started doing podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, and he invited me on. and I did a few podcasts with him, talking about the Battle of the Somme and uh, Hundred Days and, and various other things. And he said to me, he said, he said, uh, he said, come on, he said, you know, you should really be doing your own podcast. And I thought to myself, you know, when am I ever going to get a chance? With I actually bought a microphone, and then my daughter kind of stole it for her music, and uh, that was kind of the end of that. Um, and then I kept thinking about this, and because podcasts seem to have died off a little bit then, mm-hmm. and then a few years ago they started to come back again. Um, and, and I thought to myself, yeah, I really should do something with this, but again, when am I ever going to get an opportunity to kind of stand still for a minute right. and, and try and do this? And then, of course, COVID comes along, and uh, <laughs> and we're all in lockdown. Um, and, and I thought, well, this is this is that moment. So pretty much as soon as the lockdown here started, I thought, right, okay, you know, well, I'm not going anywhere for a little while. Um, I got myself a new new microphone. Um, having worked in TV, one of, the, one of the kind of pluses of that is that although I my, my job on TV was kind of to be interviewed or, or whatever, um, I did a lot of behind-camera stuff as well, and I worked with some great cameramen and sound guys, and I was always interested in the kind of technical side of it, and that's kind of paid dividends with understanding sound and all that kind of stuff and the, and the importance of microphones. Um, so I got a decent microphone, and I had garage band on my Mac, so I thought, we'll just give it a go. And I popped one out there, uh, first episode, and I thought, I don't know if anyone's going to listen to it. But people seemed to quite like it, so I carried on. Um, and, it, and it's kind of evolved from from there with... Uh, you know, a mixture of me kind of one doing virtual walks around battlefields, talking about specific subjects or individual stories or, um, you know, different aspects of the war. Um, and it's, 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 for me, I mean, a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, it's what kept me going through, through lockdown. It gave me something to listen to and when I couldn't mm-hmm. get to the battlefields or whatever. And that's really lovely to hear that, really. It's, it's, it's such a compliment when people say that. But it also kept me going uh, as well. Um, um, and it's completely changed things for me, I think, in the way I kind of 
talk about the Great War because it's made me think about that in a way that I hadn't before, the way that we kind of react to the landscape of the First World War, what it means to us, how we interpret it, and, and how we how we talk about it, the kind of language we use to talk about it. So it's kind of, that's evolved as part of it as well. So I, I, if there's ever going to be, for me, a positive of COVID, you know, that certainly is is one of them, um, that it gave me this opportunity to to do that. And and I and I find, although I've you know I've written a fair few books, I think that and, and done TV. I think that the podcast is fascinating in the way that it is so immediate in the way that you get feedback and the way that yes. you interact with the community. I mean, you must get this with with yours. Mm-hmm. The way that people kind of give you feedback, talk to you, email you stuff, you know, tell you things. And that is really, really a positive, for me, a really positive and fascinating part of it because I love to hear what people have thought of an episode, what it's meant to them, but I also love to hear what they've got to tell me about it because, you know, it's a continual learning process, something like The Great War. You never, ever know it all. And you continually know, you, you, you learn things through research and so on. And the podcast and opens it up even more where people have, emailed me accounts of their relatives who fought in different places and sent photographs through and and I you know I can't thank those people enough so it's it's great it's really really great yeah pod, podcasts have been a very um I, I feel a um a very small small d d- democratic thing where you know um again like pre pre-internet times you know um yeah pre pre-internet times I think like we we wouldn't have been able to to do to have a project like this. You would have to right. you would need a studio. Um, and now you know with with GarageBand, which I still use because I re- refuse to learn anything else. Um, they uh, yeah, like you you can just create a podcast on your own. Um, Paul, I have to ask you this one, and you are free to to not answer, so you don't give up your 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 secret sauce there. But um, <laughs> do you? podcast without a script because if you do that is just it it's mind-blowing like your 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 flow and and i'm like and i'm always thinking like like um like oh my god does does he know so much about everywhere that that he's that where you're doing your your virtual walks um and, and then I even try to like dig into the technical side, like, like, how is he doing this? How, you know, how is he flowing from, from one story to the next, to the next? And like, like, are there, are there notes or are you just talking from your amazing memory and, and experiences? Uh, they're not scripted. No, there's no scripts. Um, wow. I, uh, the, the, the first, I don't know how many, I don't know, probably first 20, there's there's absolutely nothing at all. It was just me kind of just talking, um, and, and then afterwards I kind of thought, well, I, oh, I didn't mention that, and I didn't mention that. So w- what I do now, and I think it's kind of improved them, is I I have a, like a running order of stuff that I want to cover. So I have a little six by four record card that kind of lists um, the. the to make sure that I, if I start, because there's no script, you can end up going off on kind of curves. So if I do that, then I, at least I know I need to make sure I can kind of come back to what I should be talking about. So, so I do that, but I, I don't, I don't script it. I, I think one of the things I learned from television is that 
the best kind of answers from interview viewees is when they, they they don't a they don't know what question you're going to ask them and, and b um, there's no kind of script involved. A lot of TV now they try to get you to say a specific thing, and I, I won't I won't do that. I just say to them, no, no, you're going to have to ask me that question. I'm going to reply. If you want me to say a particular word or phrase, then you're not going to get that from me. Um, so. You know, I've spent a quarter of a century sitting on a coach with a microphone in my hand talking to people as we travel around battlefields. And, and obviously that's given me a kind of a skill uh, that is an unusual skill. Um, uh, but going back to what I was saying, you know, previously about how it's kind of changed the way that I talk about the Great One, I think that that's what has come out of this, really. Um, for me, it's, it's kind of a way to a, a lot of things that I've thought about over a long, long period of time. This has given me an opportunity to kind of verbalize that. And, uh, you know, I jokingly say to a couple of people, it's, it's kind of like my confession. <laughs> it's my Great War confession yeah. uh, of what, what I've done over all these years. But I find it incredibly enjoyable to do, and in particular, in the way that I can kind of bring back some of these people that I've that I'd met and some of the vets and talk about them um, because there, there, there isn't a day that goes by where I, I don't, I don't miss them. Um, and, and back in those pre-digital days, quite a lot of them, they used to write to me two or three times a week. Letters really? would come through the post. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with stuff in and, and I can, you know, I've always missed that. It's a long, long time ago that that came to an end, but I, I've never, never not missed it really. But um, yeah. So so that, that's what I do. And what I do, again, I think information is important. I mean, I, I, I can tell you, you know, probably reasonably accurately um, how many men are in probably quite a lot of different cemeteries of the Great War. But if, if we're going to talk about a particular cemetery, I, I make a note of the number of burials in there and nationalities mm-hmm. and so on, because you want that to, to, to be correct rather than a guesstimate. So, right. so I do stuff like that. But the rest of it is just kind of, yeah, right. This episode is going to be about this. I'm going to going to walk from here, here, and here, and we're going to talk about uh, something like that, and then we'll just see what happens. So uh, that's that's what we do. So yeah. So there's there's no scripting, no, no. And I, and a couple of people, I've said this to a couple of people, and they, they can't believe it, uh, which I I take as a great compliment. But um, and they say, well, how is it possible? And I say, I have no idea. So <laughs> I don't know. It's just kind of you know, the Great War is is so much a part of what I've done all my life and, and, and who I am, that it's kind of just there really. So, uh, um, and, and I'm just grateful that these kind of ramblings, uh, you know, of a middle-aged guy who's spent most of his life trudging around battlefields are of interest to somebody. So, so it's, it's good that they are. Oh, what a, what a amazing. And, um, something that, that I've been thinking of, um, throughout our, our conversation here has been, um, you, know, you you talked about you know not uh, not not really caring for a for a regular for a regular day job and everything, but but what a what a great example I I believe that they you have shown to to your daughter like hey you know um, you know as cheesy and as cliched um, as it may sound you know, given the opportunity, like, like, like follow, follow your dreams, follow, follow your passion. Um, and, you know, and dare, dare to, dare to think outside the box. All, all of these things are, are very cheesy, but, but they are true. Like they're, they're still true. So like, what, what an amazing thing you, you've done, Paul, to, to like, sh- you know, show, 
show your daughter, show other people like, Hey, you know, you think big, you, you, you can do this. Yeah. You, you can do stuff like this. Like it's, it's amazing. You, you get to do <laughs> for lack of a better way of explaining it. Like you get to do cool stuff all, all the time. Like it's, it's, that is so, so very, very commendable. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. Yeah, and I, I know I do. And I don't. I don't I, the thing is, I don't take it for granted, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. uh, that that's one of the things I've learned is that you know, when you are so lucky to have done this, you can't take it for granted. You know, I, I, I probably thought at one stage that those veterans would live forever, but they didn't. Um, and 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 it's it's taught me a lot of lessons about life, I think, really, and and probably doing all that and some of the things that they told me made me. Uh, perhaps to some people it would make them more risk averse, but it made me less risk averse. It made me think, well, these guys, then they, they serve with blokes whose lives were snuffed out in a minute um, and never got a chance to do anything. And I, that's something that, you know, as I've got older, I've wandered around cemeteries of the Great War, whether they're British, French, German, Turkish, you know, whatever, um, and, and thought this. And, and it kind of makes you feel as if you've got a duty to live your life properly. Because right. they they didn't, and um, you know, and I'm my my daughter's a, an historian in her own right. You know, she's she's doing her own walking tours around Corselet now, and uh, and over the years, I've met a lot of really amazing young people who've, who've gone on uh, to um, to do history as a as a as a hobby, and and many of them as well as as a job. And it's really nice to have kind of help them along the way and, and, and see them flourish in the way that they have and, and, and live their dreams. So, you know, I think it's important uh, that history is in the past. That's what history is. Mm-hmm. But for young people now, that, that there is a connection to it, that they can make it their present, that they can make it part of their lives and, and part of their life um, uh, and, and everything that they do in their life. And, and that's a good thing. Oh, that's excellent. Final, uh, final question here, Paul. Um, any, any travel plans for this summer? Uh, well, I'm lucky that I get to travel all the time. So um, I've already been over to the battlefields a few times on tours this year. Um, I'm, I'm off to, uh, to sunny Italy, actually, shortly, to the battlefields of the Second World War, uh, mm-hmm. to where my dad was at Anzio. I'm taking a group there. And then I'm back on the Western Front. Um, but... Uh, I haven't been for a few years, but I'm going back to Gallipoli uh, this really? summer. So, yeah, uh, because I want to walk quite a few different areas that I haven't walked for a while. I want to record some stuff there for the podcast. Um, and I kind of want to connect with that amazing landscape of the of the Dardanelles and everything there is to it. Amazing light there, just truly amazing light for photographs. And, and it's this beautiful landscape with so much in it. Um, and so much of that beauty tinged with the sadness of, of everything that happened there in 1915 on, you know, on both sides. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my kind of big summer plan. If you like to head back to Gallipoli. Oh, that is, that is amazing. That's awesome. Paul, thank you so much, uh, for, for taking time out of your, your Saturday afternoon to, um, to, to come on the podcast. Um, this has been an, an excellent conversation and uh so not not this summer but i do hope that some summer i will uh will will have a chance to to meet up on the old front line and um i will definitely say that the first first round is on me so thank you 
thank you very much for for coming on um my pleasure mike yeah my absolute pleasure and and you know we'll, we'll get you on the old front line to talk about america and the great war i look forward to that and like you say yeah here's to when we can both walk those fields of the old front line in person awesome thank you cheers mike